We've stocked up on crosses and silver bullets here at Red Pages Podcast. October 2017. This is the Dead Pages Bloodcast, episode 102. I'm Justin, except spooky. <laughs> I'm Gord, and I'm not very spooky. We have with us a guest this week. Guest, uh, who are you, and how would you describe your level of spookiness? <laughs> Hello, I am Guest. And I am very spooky. Should we call you that the entire show? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> We're off to a, a great start. Another another winning episode. <laughs> I guess, why don't you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about who you are and, and what you do before we, we jump into our traditional segments. All right. So um, I am Daniel Doan, a.k.a. Spooky Guest. Um, I'm a game developer, I'm a growth marketer, and um, all the above. So, you know, I make games, I market games, I help other developers uh, market their games, I uh, produce games, I love playing games, I don't know. Like, just, just like everything gaming, that's me. Well, we'll talk to you about those things later in the show. But first, we've got the haps. Gentlemen, what are the haps? What are some, uh, what are some things that you've been doing this past week that aren't games? Let's uh, let's hear. Gord, why don't you why don't you start us off? Because I started last week. Well, uh, as most of you probably know, Stranger Things uh, season two has been released. So That's been pretty spooky. That. We should rate all of our things on a scale of one to spooky <laughs> <laughs> for each activity. I don't because I also have a bunch of spooky activities that I did. I mean, at times I don't know if that's true for Daniel. Can, can be pretty spooky, but mostly it's just really good, right? I don't know. I haven't watched any of it. Uh, I've been holding off because Madurika wants to watch it. And if I mm. watch it without her, she may uh, she may destroy me. I'll tell you that what I was hoping for was exactly more of what Stranger Things season one was, and uh, I'm very satisfied with the result. So it's it's the most literal sequel. It's more exactly more of this thing that you liked. Yep. Okay. I uh, I watched Blade Runner with my dad. At Is that the the new one or the old one? Twenty forty nine. Oh, did you watch Blade Runner 2 through 2048 before <laughs> getting to the 2049th one? Yeah, uh, just today actually I found out that there was a there's like an, an anime lead-in to 2049, so I might, uh, might go track that down. It was by somebody well-known, right? Uh, like it was, I remember seeing this and that it was notable. Hmm. Yeah, what, uh, as much of it as I know so far is that it exists. And that's enough for me. Okay. How did you feel about it? I heard it was really long. Yeah. Like really, like almost three hours long. I did not find that. It, it's because not I was almost three hours long. No, I mean, like I'm sure it was, but I was so heavily invested that I didn't notice. Uh, okay. It like there's there has been some conversation arising from this about how it delivers on expectations, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of people went into this movie expecting, I guess. Michael Bay and uh, superhero movies, 
car chases and explosions. And that is... You're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> but there are some explosions, okay. but... Um, it's way more thoughtful and ponderous than that. It's more about if, exploring this setting, really. How did how do you would you compare it to the first one? Because I didn't like the first one. Hmm. Uh, as a cyberpunk fan, <laughs> I did not like it. <laughs> cyberpunk fan? You can't even read uh, Neuromancer. I've tried so many times. <laughs> I I got like three quarters of the way through it this time, though. You're not a That's real like fan. That's most of the book. <laughs> that was a that was a joke, but. It, Exclusionary uh, tactics. At least one of the the shorts what is is indeed done by somebody famous. It's done by Shinichiro Watanabe, who did Cowboy Bebop. Oh, excellent! So is it like a, a whole bunch of segments? Like, uh, is this just the sequel to uh, the Animatrix? It, I think t- there are three. It looks like there are three shorts. Two of them are live, and one is animated. And he did the animated oh. one. Cool. It's called Blade Runner Blackout Twenty Twenty Two. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, that was an event that was mentioned, but they just sort of. Cut you up and uh, kept going. The, the the blackout. Yep. That was when the city briefly lost power. Yeah. Uh, which it was really frustrating. Which version of Blade Runner did you watch of the, uh, the original? Because there's like thirteen different versions, and I I know I couldn't tell you. People have very strong. I would opinions. say mm, so. It was in college, mm-hmm. and it was just at some guy's dorm. He was like, "Let's watch Blade Runner." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I haven't seen it before. And then you and watched it. I watched it and I was like, ah, I didn't really like that. I liked the book. I liked uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah, yeah, me too. Daniel, do you have an opinion on cyberpunk? Um, I think it's a pretty cool genre. Um, I have a friend who you know, really likes to write cyberpunk uh, fiction. So, I mean, you know, it's like, it's it's definitely like a good, I guess, fusion of like, like I don't know, like, it, it's, it's definitely unique. <laughs> It's like tech. It's like tech wizards, right? <laughs> yeah. Like instead of casting fireball, they cast uh, this cyber fireball. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, tech techno bowl. This what something spell. Uh, what's what's the what's the game that just like was it Hong Kong Dragonfall? Um, that was super cyberpunk. That did really well a couple years ago. Um, it was like a turn-based tactical RPG. Did either of you play that? Nope. I don't think so. Um, Shadow Shadowrun. That was what it was. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was based on the the tabletop. Right. Setting, but it was it? a super. It was a super cyberpunky fantasy mashup thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's how it typically is, isn't it? I don't know. Literally, all I know about this about the Shadowrun <laughs> tabletop game is that once Riff told me he played it and that he uh, a dragon tried to use a breath attack on him and it required a roll of 100 d6s. <laughs> at, at which point I said, that's really funny, but it sounds like that's not a very good game to like play on a tabletop. Yeah. Especially if he was playing it like... For the dice. Yeah, especially because he was probably... Like, he must have been playing it in like the 80s, right? So it's not as if he could just pull out his phone and use a hmm. die roller. He would have actually had to roll a die that many times. Or write a script. Knowing Riff, he would probably write a script. Yeah. Hang on, guys. Well, like, what if he was from the the future, though, you know? Uh, That is something that we have suspected about him. Uh, You know what? I will will send him a ping right now. (laughs) And if he gets back to me by the end of the episode, I will report back. (laughs) Excellent. All right, wait, hold on. I'm just going to say, no context, are you from the future? <laughs> In the meantime, Daniel, what have you been uh, 
hap happening? What things have been happening to you? Happening to me. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I uh, got to drive a Corvette yesterday. Ooh. <laughs> How did it drive? Beautifully. Was it uh? Was it silky smooth and made no sound as you sleekly glid? Is, is the past tense of glide, glid, glowed? I think glided. Glid, glided, glottopodies. It's glottopodies, I know it. Yeah. Uh, slid, slid down the road. I hope you didn't slide down the road. That sounds bad. Yeah, that would have been really bad. No, it was it was the, the complete opposite of that. It was it was loud, it was obnoxious, and it was it was too crazy. <laughs> cool. I don't think I've ever driven a fancy car of any sort. I think the fanciest car I've probably driven is like a Jaguar. That's that's pretty fancy. There. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was like the lowest end Jaguar, the one that like is probably equivalent to like a Prius in price hmm. and fanciness. So it was a Jaguar, but it wasn't a Jaguar. Right. It was. It had the little Jaguar on the front, but it definitely is like the other Jaguars make fun of it behind its back after school <laughs> type of Jaguar. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, it was pretty nice as, as cars go. Uh, have, you got, have you been doing anything else? Any other interesting things? Uh, let me see. Movies. Oh, I, uh, watched, uh, I watched Talladega Nights for the first time the other day. <laughs> okay. That's the... the um, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell. Yeah, Will yeah. Ferrell. It came out at, right after Anchorman, right? That yeah. That was like his follow-up. Yeah. Okay. I didn't see it because I thought Anchorman was really good, and I was afraid that it would ruin it for me. <laughs> oh, so so tell me tell me about uh, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. <laughs> well, I mean, like, like back when it came out, you know, everyone was all, all, all hyped about it, and I don't know why I uh, never got around to seeing it, but, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's, you know, it's a hoot, like, like Will Ferrell is just crazy, okay. like over the top, awesome movie. <laughs> okay, that's good because like I think that Will Ferrell is really hit or miss, and he's been going downhill over the past couple of years because he keeps making the same movie over and over again. So it's good to know that this is like when he was still in his like good period. Because <laughs> Anchorman was really good. I really like that movie. Well, I guess. Uh, I guess if you have nothing else, then it's it's my turn to, to talk. Um, I watched a bunch of movies this week, uh, and I'll go over them pretty quickly. So I watched, because because uh, Spookloween is coming up, I decided I would watch a spooky movie. Uh, so I watched uh, Curse of Chucky, um, because while, uh, while Maddie was here for Indiecade, we went to Universal one day. I think I talked about this. And we saw an entire truck full of Chucky dolls that they were using for their for their Halloween park thing, and so I saw it was on Netflix. Well, actually, I saw okay, so I saw Cult of Chucky, which came out this year, was on Netflix, and I thought to myself, those movies are not very good. I wonder how this one is. And I looked up reviews, and I th saw, oh wow, this movie reviewed like incredibly well. I should watch it, but I should watch the one that came before it first, which was actually a very good idea because it set up the sequel in like a very direct way. Cult of Ch or Curse of Chucky, not a very good movie. I would say if you are not invested in Chucky as a horror icon, and why would you? Because he's not scary. He's, he's literally a doll. He's not superhumanly strong. He's not magic, except for the fact that he's a living doll. 
all he's got is the element of surprise. Like, you can throw him <laughs> across the room. There's nothing scary about this Liani. So, unless you are invested in that, don't watch uh, Curse of Chucky. But Cult of Chucky is really good. It reviewed well because it was actually good. I was so confused for the first three quarters of that movie. <laughs> it takes place in an insane asylum, which means that you have no idea how much of what's going on is actually happening, how many Chuckies there are. What? Is why it? there would be... Yeah, exactly. Like, you know at the end of the last movie that Chucky w- was captured and his head cut off and kept in a box. And you see at the beginning of this movie, he's still there, and then it like cuts to a completely different place with different people, and Chucky is killing them. And you go, what is going on? And it just keeps like <laughs> twisting what you think you might know is going on. And then the bad guys just win at the end, like they get in the car, laugh, and drive away. <laughs> and like the, I would the, say that's a spoiler. Chuckies, yeah. The plural. I would Chuckies. say that's a spoiler, but like this isn't a movie that you see to for the plot. You see it to hear Chucky like swear at people, I guess. So I don't know. Curse of Chucky gets a seven spooks out of spooky from me. <laughs> um and then the other horror movie I watched was a movie called Clown, in which a dad, uh, he's, it's his son's birthday, and the clown that he's hired accidentally is double booked and can't come to the party. So he's, he's a real estate agent, and he finds a mysterious clown suit in one of his rental properties that he's looking to sell. And so he puts it on and dresses up as the clown for his son's birthday, and they have a great time falls asleep, he wakes up in the morning, and he can't get the suit off. The hair has become his hair. Uh, like, the nose has attached itself to his nose. Oh, yeah, this is the and one that's in the same universe as uh, Tim Allen's Claws, right? Uh, I don't know that movie, but yeah, yeah, yes, yes, and. Uh, yeah, yes, okay. Um, and it turns out that this was not a clown suit at all, but the skin of an ancient Scandinavian demon called the Clown. And it's going to slowly take over his mind and devour five children before he can be released. And uh, he has to try and break free from the curse of this clown. Hmm. And this movie was okay, but the reason I watched it was because the story about how it got made was really good. Um, It was... So there was a fake trailer for this movie that was put out a couple years ago and it was tagged as like being produced by the mind, the insane mind of Eli Roth. And of course he was not at all involved with the project. It was just a parody trailer, but Eli Roth saw the trailer and said, okay, well like good enough and funded them to actually make it, (laughs) which just goes to show that like sometimes your YouTube joke can turn into a real thing. So that was good. YouTube jokes. Yeah, we should make more YouTube jokes. Uh, memo Siri, remind me to, <laughs> to make more YouTube jokes. <laughs> Everyone who is listening through their speakers. Yeah, write write us in a listener mail, but all it says is make more YouTube jokes. <laughs> um, and then the last, uh, then I watched two Disney movies. I watched most of Atlantis: The Lost Empire, and this is a bad movie, and I don't want to talk about it because it's bad. Wait, Atlantis is only, bad. Yeah, Jeez, the only I, thing I, I will say... you watched it to mm. get the taste of Big Hero 6 out of your mouth. No, I watched it because I saw it in theaters when I was little and hadn't seen it since. Mm. And I 
I was watching this and I talked to my brother who loves Disney a lot. And I said, this movie is bad. It feels like they cut, of the first 20 minutes, it feels like this was a 40 minute opening and that they cut half of it and nothing anyone does or says makes any sense. And then I looked it up and it turns out not only was that true, the script, the script was almost double the length of a normal Disney movie. And when they were making it, they got through the first two acts and they were already more than two hours into, into a film. And so they just had to cut most of the movie to get it down to a length that made any sense to put in theaters. Just like chopping up fully completed animated sequences. And so I feel like this wow. movie is bad, but there is a version of this movie that would have been good. It would have been four hours long. And then the other one I watched was Big Hero 6, and that was the one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I, I'm, not, I'm not going to go into a long vitriolic diatribe about the many sins of Big Hero 6, but I have never felt so dirty watching, like after watching a movie. I actually took a shower after seeing it to get its stench off of me because I felt bad inside from seeing wait, it. Wait, wait, I'm, I'm like really curious now. So like, why do you hate it? Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Okay, like really succinctly, the thesis of Big Hero 6 is that the only people that you can trust in the world are rich corporations that every form of, you know, in quotes, legitimate authority, whether it's the police or like scientists or academics or whatever, are all either incompetent or actively malicious. <laughs> big business is the only, and it's like what happens in this movie is that like they think the big, the business guy is the villain, but actually it's the professor. <laughs> and all the business guy wanted to do was use his money to make the world a better place through private enterprise and philanthropy. <laughs> and, like, coupled with the inherently libertarian, uh, like, thing that, like, superheroes must be, because, like, even the most liberal superhero is a vigilante act, acting outside of the law. Like, that's, that's how superheroes work. So it's inherently tied into that sort of politics. It just made me feel gross all over between it's like oh and also because it came out during the Obamacare debate and the main character's sidekick is a private uh, private industry healthcare robot that solves everything fine the very first time every time <laughs> I was just like man this movie's agenda is just I think you I so we were talking about this. this we were okay so we were talking about this at our Slack and Matt Matt uh, was like. I think you may have read things into this that weren't there. And then I said, these are literally the events of the movie. And he said, well, yeah, I guess, I, I guess, I guess all those things did happen. So. Yeah, technically those events did occur, but you're yeah, putting a spin on things. It baffles me that this movie came out and then Zootopia came out next. They are like diametrically opposed to each other. And I really like Zootopia. Actually, maybe Frozen came out in between. Anyway. That's why I hated Big Hero 6. I could talk about this for a really long time, but I don't want to. Because it's not, it's not a good podcast material. <laughs> Maybe the, the fact that I hated it and the brief explanation was. But I could just talk about this for a long time, and nobody wants to hear that. I'm sorry that I didn't like Big Hero 6. If, if, if you're a person who liked Big Hero 6, if you, Daniel, liked Big Hero 6, <laughs> I, don't, I don't begrudge you the fact that you enjoyed this. I've, I know many people who enjoyed that movie. It just made me feel really sad. <laughs> 
I mean, I think that yeah, I think that if the political climate of this country weren't the way it is right now, I would have felt less sad. Like if I had seen this movie when it came out, I probably wouldn't have felt that way. But I have been tainted. <laughs> I feel like the uh, the I guess the agenda you know totally like like flew over my head because I never actually even thought about that. So I was like, oh wow, this is interesting. No, I mean, like, this is, this is, like, what I do for a living. I teach, like, English stuff to college kids, right? So, like, I can't not watch a thing and be like, well, what are the subtexts here? Like, what is the, what are, what are these illusions trying to convince the, the viewer of? <laughs> and it, it makes it so I can't enjoy anything. Oh. <laughs> That's, you may, you may have seen on our, on our website profiles that I enjoy being outraged over everything. Uh, and that's that's only mostly a joke. <laughs> um, I read most of the book uh, Cybertext by Espen Arthet, Ar- uh, Aspen Arseth. Uh, are you familiar with, with Espen Arseth at all? Um, I am not. So Espen Arseth is a... He's, he's a professor at the University of Copenhagen in game studies and electronic literature. And he is sort of best known for propagating this idea in the late 90s of ergodic literature, which this book was sort of the um, ur-text of, about types of literature defined broadly to encompass books and, like, cybertexts and games, sort of anything that you might analyze as a, in quotes, text, uh, that takes more than a nominal amount of effort to consume. Uh, and he, he sort of defines an, that nominal amount of effort as anything more than moving your eyes up and down the page and turning pages of a book. And this has become very influential in the way that a lot of people think about literature and text and game. And I'm I have some problems with it because... This worked pretty well in 1997 when he wrote this book, but ga- like games have exploded in complexity and in sort of not like even more fundamentally in the way that people interact with game as an object in the world, such that I feel like that definition today is exploded out to being so broad as to being useless. Um, and you may or may not disagree on that, but I'm trying to think about how we can sort of rein back in constraints about what defines meaningful effort. And I think part of it is like the literacy and not like literal, not like reading literacy, but like technical literacy of the general population, because Everybody knows how to read a book, so it's considered low effort. We just understand that. Like, we've, as a species, determined rules for reading. You turn the page, you move your eyes. But it's not a thing that's instinctual. Like, we don't come out of the womb knowing how to read a book. It's just ingrained in our society. And at what point do, like, basic game controls stop meeting the the sort of limit of complicated because the vast majority of the population has some sort of basic interface literacy with the medium from a very young age. And I think this is like, if you've seen that Twitter gif 
of the little kid with the Game Boy Color trying to touch the screen and just being confused why the game doesn't do anything when they touch the screen. Like, that's what, like, in 20 years from now, you're just going to have that generation is just going to be what everybody is. And they can get so, right off my lawn. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, so, anyway, that's the book that I was reading. Uh, I would recommend it if you are not put off by the things that I just said. And it's called Cybertext by Espen Arseth. And that should transition us to the game section. Let's do it. <laughs> Daniel, have you been playing any games lately? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually playing one right now. Oh man, what game are you playing? <laughs> I'm playing Street Fighter 4 for uh, iOS. Huh, how does that... Are you using a con- like a Bluetooth control? How how does that work? So the uh, the uh, touchscreen controls are actually really really good. I mean you know I I uh, came from you know playing it from uh, on the arcade and then uh, playing it on computer via an arcade stick and you know surprisingly it's it's amazingly well ported over to the phone. <laughs> huh, so is it just like an on-screen controller? Yeah yeah. Yes. Huh. Wow I. I am so bad at fighting games that I can't even wrap my head around being able to play one like on a touch screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because like, because uh, like most, uh, you know, games ported onto the uh, touch screen like are pretty horrible. But um, I'm actually super su- uh, surprised that Capcom, you know, did it so well. Uh, because honestly, like, it doesn't even feel like I'm, uh, you know, like, or like it doesn't feel like I have to fiddle with it too much to like get what I want done. So it like it just feels like a natural native uh, app i guess who who do you favor to play as i'm a uh ryu and uh, ken player <laughs> cool cool have you played have you played anything else uh besides that um i have not mm. well at least you're not playing as dan <laughs> As, is Dan in Street Fighter Four? I don't actually know. Yeah, I think so. I've never played against, okay. or I've I've never chosen. So, <laughs> uh, I try to only play as Dan because he's funny. <laughs> and if you're not if you're not playing to be funny, then what are you doing? That's my motto. Gosh, that applies to so many things that you play. I know. Uh, Gord, what have you been playing? Well, uh, that reminds me. A couple of weeks ago. We had some friends over to play some of our classic Japanese retro Nintendo games, which included Super Street Fighter 2. Oh, okay. And then we played uh, a uh, Ninja Turtles fighting game, which it, it is very clear was just a reskin of Super Street Fighter 2. <laughs> did it only have four playable characters? Like, did you only <laughs> fight the turtles against each other? Because it feels like the roster on a... Ninja Turtles. Maybe I don't know enough about Ninja Turtles. No, there was That's like also possible. yeah, there was there were some. There were si- there were six characters because you could play as the Shredder and Splinter. <laughs> yeah, you could also play as uh, this this shark with legs. Oh, the Street Sharks! I remember that show. And I don't actually recall. Could you play as the girl? I forget what her name is. April. Yeah. She drove the van. That's what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, I, I, I don't think you could. Uh, I also played some... Uh, I, I don't remember uh, if it was you or me who put this into the document, as is, but... Uh, <laughs> that, was <me. laughs> that was me. Doki I, Doki. I filled out a... 
Yeah, I filled out a bunch of your stuff while I was preparing for the episode. <laughs> and I figured, ah, this is what Gord would write. Doki Doki, please end my suffering club. Which is about yeah, right. So this is... Mm, Doki Doki Literature Club is this my second favorite game that has come out this year. <sighs> it's so... And I know you hate it. Traumatic. It's, it's the best. It just made Daniel, me feel really, you, really bad, and then it made me, made me feel a whole lot worse, and then kept doing that, and then it was over. Have you played Doki Doki Literature Club? I have not. Have you heard don't, anything about don't it? Don't listen to anything this man says. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> okay. Doki Doki Literature Club is a visual novel that is very good at making you... Feel stupid for caring where, about... Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's a game that is really good at making you reconsider the boundaries of where gameplay begins and ends as, a, as an experience. Hmm. I don't personally think that that is true to the extent that Justin seems to think it is. Like, I think that there's one thing that extends beyond the reach, and it is just a little gimmick. I really enjoyed this, and Gord really hated it. I do not think that it was worth the experience. It's also a thing that is very hard to talk about without completely ruining it one way or the other. So I would recommend to all of our listeners, play Doki Doki Literature Club. Don't. And write in Don't. and tell us who is right. <laughs> you can't, uh, you can't you, take it back. That's, that's the thing. You can't unplay this game. If you didn't like it, then write in and say, I wish I hadn't played that game. <laughs> if you did like it, then write in and say, Justin is always right. If you didn't play it, write in and say, thank you, Gord. You saved me from a horrible, terrible experience. Uh-huh. If, if you're the person who made this game, uh, hey, come be please on our podcast. come on our podcast. Yeah, please come <laughs> talk to us. This will be because re- we'll have a really good discussion because I loved your game. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it was no Persona 5, but the current game of the year. But it was it was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. It's not it is not doing anything original. Um, there are other games that have done this sort of thing before. I think it just does it way better than any of those. At all. What Persona Five or uh... no no uh, Doki Doki Literature Club? Hmm. Um, and and like he he is perfectly willing to admit this. Things like um, oh geez what's what's that Japanese puzzle game that came out. Uh, Irisu syndrome, like eight or nine years ago, maybe, or yeah, Irisu syndrome, uh, which is not a good game. Uh, don't play it, but it does a lot of the same stuff as this game, uh, badly. So it's mm. it's interesting to see this is like a thing that does well what many other weird niche Japanese uh, indie games have tried to do but failed because their medium and their gimmick were distinctly at odds with each other what we really need to do is wait 15 years for blizzard to uh finally catch oh, yeah, up just create the perfect version <laughs> of this thing <laughs> yeah okay cool have you played anything else yes i finished up steins gate zero oh good which i didn't think was as good as steins gate no. uh and it mostly because it just seemed like a really hyper extended uh hmm it couldn't end specific like it just aspect, ha- right? It just has to like stop at some point, right? Yeah. Like you, you do. The, he does the thing, and then it's over. There's no way for it to have a 
satisfying climax. We could have had an epilogue. We could have had an epilogue that would have satisfied me a lot more. Because this was just like a whole bunch of buildup for something in the previous game, and then yeah, like you said, it's it's over now. It's it's done. Yeah, I don't. I think that if there had been an epilogue, it would have broken the physics of the world. The real world, the one, the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have torn a black hole in the real world, uh, out of which antimatter would. Have but like, worked. we didn't really get the payoff in Steins Gate. We just got the, you know, uh, hey, we we figured it out. Now we're going to do this thing, and then that game ended. So, it's. I think you would have been more satisfied if you had played Steins Gate 95% of the way through, put it down, played through this, and then come back and played the true ending of Steins Gate. But then it would have felt more like the way it feels, which is that it is just really, really long for... Yeah, it is. It is It is a mid... It is. That's true. It's just like... It feels like it's the other half of a story, and because it's only half of the story, it's not going to feel complete by itself. But I think it makes no... Like, it, it doesn't have any illusions about that's what it is. Mm. Like, you couldn't play this game without having played Steins Gate first. You just like, be incomprehensible. What I, well, I guess I won't spoil anything, but mm-hmm. I, I, want, I wanted to see the result of what everyone was working towards. Yeah, you did. It was called The True Ending of Steins Gate. Mm. That, that's literally what it was. Yeah. Okay. This is a really hard thing to talk about. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, anything else? I know that you've been playing a, a thing a lot. A so. whole bunch of Super Mario Odyssey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just very concentrated. For a change, you're the one playing a brand new game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, do I, you have anything like to say about it other than that it's good? I am super satisfied with this. And it almost makes up for the fact that there are two games for the Switch. And one of them okay. is a, a port of a Wii U game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a little bitter about that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure I'll play it whenever I get a Switch. Mm. Uh, but hey, uh, Frog Fractions is finally making money, so pff, nice. maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll be able to use some of that some of that hot game dev bucks to uh, funnel into uh, acquiring a Switch. Now you're supposed to uh, turn that back into capital. Well, to fund I, more games. Uh, Okay, let me put it this way. If I had only made $300 from Frog Fractions, I would not be using it <laughs> on the Switch. Um, cool. Yep, I also played some uh, Animal Crossing. Pocket I also Camp. played that. The Australian version, which you were saying is a uh, soft launch. Yeah, it's like a soft launch, yeah. Which you can get I, by downloading I want to hold DVD off game. on talking about that until it's actually out. Okay. Well, unless you have like a sentence or two can, to say about it, which is probably like, yeah, you like it, right? Yeah. Like, I'll just say some general things about Animal Crossing. Dobutsu uh, no Mori, welcome to Animal Village. I feel like this is just a worse Animal Crossing because they flattened a whole bunch of things, and you don't really have a place to explore. There's no placiness to it. You just got a map with like three three spots where you can click on to click on the things to get the things that so you're saying that a mobile version of a game is uh, less well realized than the console version of a game but like oh well sure but they could have gone in a different direction with it 
I guess. Could have explored yeah, some here. I think that not not to start a long discussion about this, but I'm really enjoying it. I mm. feel like it does what Animal Crossing is best at, which is allowing me to decorate a space the way I feel like. Like that's all I need. Also, uh, come visit my house, which is impeccably decorated. <laughs> have you in, seen uh, my, in, Have you seen mine lately? Uh, not lately. I just did the the auto ad furniture until. Oh no! I meant my real house. Oh. oh, okay. Like the house that I have in is, real life. Is everything just super cutesy? Every surface. I, my my house is literally pink, bro. All right. Like pink with white gingerbread trim. <laughs> right, but <laughs> you didn't choose that. Uh, but I chose where I was moving into when I decided to live here. How, how big a factor was that? <laughs> it was <laughs> substantial. All right. Yeah. You could probably guess who my favorite character in Doki Doki Literature Club was. Uh, Natsuki. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's true, because she was the best. Because she understood what aesthetic was. Mm. Daniel, what have you been playing? Oh, I guess we... No, he already played Final... You know, he's Justin, been playing Street Fighter. Been playing? He's still playing Street Fighter. He's probably playing it right now <laughs> while you, we've been talking. Have you played anything since you played Street Fighter? <laughs> and is it more Street Fighter? Um, yeah, yeah, more and more Street Fighter. No, the, the last the last game I played prior to Street Fighter was the Diablo 3. I uh, got really into that. Oh, nice. Uh, were you playing the new, like, Necromancer stuff? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I actually came back to it after the Necromancer uh, came out, and I uh, ended up uh, getting into that. Let me tell you a story <laughs> about the Necromancer. We all, we all uh, bought that, that, uh, that pack, and uh, intending to all play it together, and we have not done this since launch. Yeah. I mean, Matt and I did, and then we were like, we should stop. We should wait for Gord so that we don't get too far ahead of him. And he's just like 10 level, million levels behind us. And Gord never played it again. So we've all, we've been waiting. When did that come out? June? That long. However long it's been, we've been waiting for Gord to say, okay, let's play Diablo. Wow. I, I have been playing Mario since June. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> oh, I've also... Uh... Played a couple other games, but uh, I think we've got a whole segment yeah, for that later. Yeah, let's. Yeah, um, so I played episode two of Life is Strange Before the Storm. I feel like uh, it is better than the first episode, but it started out feeling worse. Like I was like, "Where is this going? Like, how is anything going to happen?" But I think the places where it ended were really interesting. Hmm. Um, I'm still going to hold off judgment until the whole thing is out. I think it's only three episodes though, so the new one, the next one, is just the last one. I'm playing a lot of Chaos Child, which is a visual novel uh, about psychics, I guess. It's the bit, like psychics who can, if they believe something, they can make it happen in the real world so as long as they can get other people to believe it. They're orcs in Warhammer 40k. Yeah, basically. <laughs> like, yeah, as long as they believe hard enough, it becomes true. Um, and it's a murder mystery. You... It's it's got one of my favorite things where uh, you know the like pegboard with a million photographs and pieces of colored wire and strings between yeah. them. Speaking like, of yeah. stranger things, yeah, you put you put together a huge one of those over the course of this game as you try to uncover what the heck is going on with this serial case of murders around uh, Shibuya and. As somebody who would like to have one of those but has no <laughs> conspiracy to investigate, uh, 
it's really satisfying I, to like I, continually work on that. I feel like I have constructed these, except it was for game development. Yeah, it's not the same when you're like making it up as you go. <laughs> but yeah, and um, so there are two. It's that's one of the triggers. You'll just get like, it's it's one of the interactive parts of the of the visual novel. It's like you'll get a bunch of photographs, and the character will say like this thing happened and you have to figure out which of the photographs or post-it notes correspond with the things that he's trying to put together. Can you deliberately do it wrong and what is the penalty for that? Uh, if you do it wrong 20 times, you get an achievement. <laughs> that, that's the only penalty. He'll just like keep saying, no, that's not right until you get it right. You can't fail. Oh, I was hoping you could like get to the end of the game and just have... Uh, you could put up, like, he, he will let you put them up wrong before he says that it's wrong. So you could get a bunch of goofy-looking strings and <laughs> pins going nowhere. Um, but uh, the game that I played the most of, probably, is Final Fantasy XV, which I just got super into this weekend. Huh. Uh, I got this game... Jeez, when did I get my PlayStation? Like, a year ago, right? Around the holidays. And I got this with it. It has taken me this long to really get into it. You, uh, Yeah, it's, you really bounced off of it, didn't you? Yeah, well, it's okay. So, lesson number one don't put out your video game if it's not done because <laughs> it has had a year worth of updates, DLCs, and patches. Like, wow. And it is just way better now. Thanks, modern uh, AAA. Yeah, don't put out your game if it's like clearly only two thirds done, please. Uh, but it's doing this thing that I really enjoyed in Final Fantasy XIII. Where it's just like, oh, this sense of scale of this world is huge. Hmm. Monster will walk by and he's ten times your size. <laughs> it's really, it's really like, I just enjoy the things that I'm looking at. Um, but it's just actually a huge open world, as opposed to 13, which was even in the open segment, still basically on rails. Um, I very much am going to like try and actively finish this game, or at least play as much of it until I lose interest again. Hmm. But it is just like, it, it's got its hooks in, in a way that ge a game hasn't in a really long time. Like, yeah. when I'm not playing it, I'm thinking about, like, kind of want to play Final Fantasy XV. And even <laughs> if I don't play it that day at all, I'll wake up and be like, tomorrow I'm going to play some Final Fantasy XV. And I don't have the time to do that. Like, I've got dissertations to write, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I just, like, I, when, I don't know what it is about it. Because I, if I think about it intellectual, I'm just like... This game isn't doing anything like particularly good or interesting, but something about it is is really working for me. And I'm just can you go with it. I can you guess. put your hat on a T Rex? No, but I can punch a T Rex. <laughs> Only it's not called T Rex; it's called Behemoth. The combat in this game is baffling. I hit buttons until I win or until I lose, and I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I've made it. I'm like. 20 hours into this game. I've killed bosses. I could not tell you how. <laughs> I think that it doesn't even matter. Well, you've, like the you've, combat you've, is you've at all times at least got three AIs who are doing their best to make up for that, right? Oh, yeah. The, they carry me super hard, for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I am almost finished with Cuphead. I'm on the final boss. He has a little bit more difficult than the boss before him. This game is really satisfying. That game is, is good. That game is good. I played a bit. Um, oh, good. I, uh, it, well, I mean, I guess to contrast what you were saying, it hasn't grabbed me. 
I imagine that someday I would like to play more, but I feel like after playing a couple of levels that I sort of got the, the idea. It's the Dark know? Souls of Contras. Hmm. It's just like every single aspect of that game is just learning enemy movements, right? Enemy tells and... Uh, yep. As I said, it's the Dark Souls of, of Contra. Yeah. I have seen people just like go through this game on the hardest difficulty without taking a hit and killing every boss in 20 seconds. Like it can be done. Hmm. But just gotta get good just gotta get good man all right well i guess if nobody has other games that they want to play we can move on to our our final segment the interview segment spooky let's yeah on a scale of one to spooky how spooky is the interview (laughs) segment it's like a like a top hat with a bat inside of it i'd say that's pretty spooky where did that where did that bat come from i think he lives in there I think he's um, got rabies? That'd be pretty spooky. Yeah, rabies is the spookiest part of Halloween. <laughs> I really like the, uh, the zombie uh, fiction that states that uh, the plague was just a modified version of rabies, or an adapted version of rabies. Ah, well, that was uh, 28 Days Later, right? Oh, I don't know. I think that was 28 Days Later. All right, so uh, let's let's go to our listener questions. We had three listeners write in, so we will do a drawing, and two of you will win one of Daniel's games. So uh, we'll read through all of them, and then we'll we'll draw a name out of a hat, I guess. That sound good? Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Soul Aaron writes, Daniel, what are your thoughts on modern gaming and the mindset of modern gamers? Hmm, that's a really really broad question. Yeah, so you can answer it as as succinctly or as in-depth as you choose. All right, so yeah, modern gaming, modern gamers, uh, modern game developers. What does that even mean? <laughs> what is game? <laughs> uh, I, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> so, well, okay, so like here, as a way of framing a way to think about it, right? A lot of your games, I'd say like all of them that I've played at least, definitely have a sort of retro aesthetic to them that you are sort of bringing something from the the misty days of gaming past into a modern sort of design sensibility what sort of what are your thoughts on what has changed over that period and what sort of those updates what what do you keep what do you uh, change um As, if that helps you focus your thinking yeah, a little bit yeah yeah um, I think that I, I guess as you know the the games industry has evolved over the years, I feel like it's more accessible to like more people because because I remember you know trying to play uh, n- like NetHack back in the day or, or <laughs> and it's just like it's just so rudimentary you know like it's it's hard for for you to like jump in uh, like without being super confused by the interface by you know the, the UI. Um, yeah, so I feel like, as a whole, uh, I feel like modern games are much better at uh, easing the player into the experience as opposed to just you know like just uh, being super hardcore about it and just uh, like like kind of tossing them in there without any context. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, we've got uh, we've we've learned a lot about game design, uh, and it's always hard to play backwards. Like, you wouldn't want to start with Metroid Prime and then go to Super Metroid and then go to 
to, wow. to match my mm. two. Bold statements. <laughs> I mean, like, if you were introducing those games to someone, you'd really want to lead with the the, the, the first one. Because each one, you know, they're, they're growing and developing and you're... I would say, like, lead with Metroid Zero Mission. Okay, are you... Which is itself, like, a remake. Like, if you're concerned about them bouncing off, maybe you don't start with... Metroid yeah. So, what are you? What What is your goal in introducing a person to the game? Then, like, that's that's what you need to make clear. Someone's got no experience with Metroid, and they're interested in in, in developing uh, a uh, an understanding. I definitely would not start them with the original. But I'd like, start with them with like one of the modern ones, or like a castle modern Castlevania game. Yeah. Okay. Um, but like. You wouldn't go from uh, Pokemon Fire Red. You wouldn't play through that and then fire up Pokemon Red, because like the first thing that they no. do in Fire yeah, Red yeah. is say, mm-hmm. "Please, just uh, basically just hard code into the game the ability to run, which was not something that you had." Right. And like that, that was that's a huge deal. And if you get used to that, and that just becomes part of your basic, uh, uh, I don't know, set of verbs your toolkit for approaching this game and then you take a step back to a time when you didn't have that it's like it's you really feel it whereas if you go the other way uh it, you know it's only additive so what was the question i missed it <laughs> uh at the same time though we, we you know we we've we've also lost a lot because we are uh um maybe babying players a little bit uh, do you think that there's what do you think the balance is there between just handing everything to the player and, or uh, letting them come to a, uh, a sense of uh, accomplishment mastery even hmm. I feel like, um, like I guess as, as technology evolves I mean you know everything's going to be like a lot simpler but at the same time new new I guess uh, complexities kind of like emerge, you know, kind of like programming languages. Um, you know, they've they've kind of like like evolved uh, more into like high, higher level languages these days. Mm-hmm. But um, at the same time, like that opens a lot of doors for, you know, um, I guess like emergent complexity, if you will. Um, so I feel like even though, like like there's a sentiment that oh, like games are kind of quote-unquote dumbed down i feel like that that's that's just like how things are are naturally gonna i guess evolve because um like it's easier uh for players to to like get into and um and and like even if it's you know kind of oversimplified sometimes um i feel like like it's up to the player to discover new ways to, to like interact with the, the game system. And I mean, yeah, so, so like, like, uh, like depth and complexity, uh, I guess, isn't, it, like, it's not independent of, I guess, um, the difficulty for the player to like get in, into the game in the first place. So I feel like with a well-designed game, players um, should be able to, you know, just easily get into the game but then I guess discover more and more ways to make things more complex as the game progresses. Hmm. Yeah, like uh, 
So it's easily accessible, but it has a high scale cap, for example. Right, right. Cool. Uh, Alistair, uh, Alistair writes, is there a... a I think it just might be Alistair. Alistair? Alistair writes, uh, is there a chance for a... Is there any chance for a future major update to Sanctuary RPG? I feel it was left somewhat unfinished. One of my favorite games when it came out, so any new possibilities would be welcome. Um, so, so we are working on a little secret project that I uh, cannot announce yet. <laughs> but Ooh. as far as um, uh, updates to Sanctuary RPG Black Edition, um, it, I mean, like honestly, I mean, like the game has like a lot of spaghetti code in there, and so I mean, I I would like to work on it, but it's just I don't want to break stuff. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, so the game's, uh, I guess, not going to get updated uh, for the foreseeable future. Okay. Uh, Evo Jujan, Jute, Judranjo, Evo <laughs> Judandro, I'm going to, I probably still ruined that, said, Hello, this is a bit of a long-winded question. It's to do with narrative agency in games. Games like Call of Duty don't really give any narrative agency to players. They can't change the story that the game is telling them. Mass Effect or Telltale games give really good illusions of an ability to change what the story is told, but somewhat fall flat after the first playthrough. RPGs like Fallout New Vegas gave many players many options in how to resolve various stories they encounter, but is that just a better illusion of narrative agency? Can an authored story have any player agency? Do only roguelikes offer true narrative freedom? Is only narrative agency achieved through mechanics agency real? Sorry for the rambling. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Greetings from Slovenia. Oh. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. So I guess. Um, so uh, so the question was, do do roguelikes solve the problem of uh, lack of agency? Yeah, I guess lack of narrative agency. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like 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 part of what makes roguelikes so endearing to like a lot of gamers is that you know they they can role play you know situations in their mind and like it just feels like the uh, the the story is theirs to tell instead of you know the um, game hand holding them um and and like i guess yeah like with with uh, sanctuary rpg in particular um i really you know made the point to to like try to give the player as much freedom as possible to do that you know so, um, yeah, I would I would have to like agree that roguelikes are a really great genre uh, for that freedom. It's interesting because I think that there's this tension between so he he talks about narrative agency and mechanical agency, like authored narrative content is necessarily going to be the enemy of agency. Because if you're trying to tell a specific story in your game, you can't, like, there are only going to be a finite number of possible paths that you, the player is going to be able to take to actually get to the end, right? Like, you can't do what you do in a tabletop game where you're playing with a dungeon master. And so if the, even though the dungeon master has a story that they're looking to tell, if you go, well, I'm going to do this, and it's not in the story plan, they can adapt on the fly. And the computer just like can't do that Gosh. until we invent AI, right? <laughs> like that's the hollow deck. How far out do you think that's gonna be? Just like every game <sighs> installation comes with a, a full fledged artificial intelligence that can respond so to think, 
so I think, like, what, what are games really good at, right? Like, when they tell a story, it doesn't really matter. Like, I think that there's sort of, like, a false equivalency going on with this question wherein uh, narrative agency equals, like, good. And on some level, sure, yeah, like, th that is what games are good at, is, like, providing the player with the ability to manifest their own desires upon uh, the world or the space, and mechanical agency is really good at that. So, like, in, in Sanctuary RPG, like, you can choose to be a wizard, or you can choose to be a barbarian, or whatever. It's up to you. You get to make that choice, and it's your, you're sort of dictating that direction of the way things are going to go. Yes? This, this sounds good so far? Yeah, yeah, like, the, the, the way I see it is, like, it's kind of like a, mm -hmm. like a, so, like, so like you you have to or sorry so so you're like starting off at like one place and then you have a destination to go to and there's like this like you know long highway and on the highway you know there's uh, there's like gas stations there's like pit stops there's like uh, uh, like there's like other lanes other cars and then you get to choose you know what kind of car you're you're in you you kind of get to choose uh, you know what pit stops to to like stop at you get to choose which lanes to go on and how, how fast you're going. So yeah, so I mean, at the end of the day, like, um, you know, the, the um, game's gonna, you know, lead you to that same destination, but getting there, you you have, I guess, like... You have a bunch of choices yeah, about how you get yeah. there. Yeah, and I think the more highly authored your game is, in terms of the narrative content, the f more limiting those choices are. And I think he talks about that in his questions, when he talks about, like, Telltale games, I don't know if you've played any of Telltale's games, but they are almost like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Like, they are just very, very highly authored narrative content that you're being railroaded through. But they take advantage of something that games are really good at, which is lying to you, <laughs> um, to make you feel culpability. So, for example, if you're playing The Walking Dead and you make a decision in the game at a branching narrative point that causes one of the characters to die, you feel bad. You, because your brain, you know, is set up to like, oh, I do, I take action and I see reaction and I know that my action has result. And in the real world, that's how it works. But in the video game, like, you didn't, your action did not kill that character. That character was programmed to die ahead of time. It's not your fault, really. But in the moment of playing it, you don't think about it that well, way. You think, oh, I killed that guy. Unless you're really, really meta. Like, the average player isn't going to think about it. Like, if you ask somebody on Reddit, what did you do? They're not going to say, I issued a command and the computer <laughs> executed it in such that it, like, it triggered some code that caused an animation of a character to d play where that character died. They're going to say, like, I aimed at the zombie and pulled and I missed and I shot Harvey in the head or whatever, right? That's how they talk, because that's how people think about it. They talk about it the way that they think about it, not the way that it actually plays out. But that's why if you play through the game a second time, you realize that it's all, like, shadow puppets. Things are going to play out, even if you make completely different choices, things are going to play out the same way. Like, that character's just going to die either way, even if you do the other thing. Or, like, uh... The trolley problem, right? Like, I, oh, well, like yeah. If you're gonna kill one person or kill five people, yeah. But either way, someone's going to die. I, I guess. I think that's a little different. I don't want to get into the trolley problem because we'll never <laughs> get out. 
Well, but the, yeah, the, that, the, like, the, the most difficult choices I remember in Walking Dead were like, do you choose one or the other? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, yeah, but then it like it like, but it brings it back in really quickly. Like, it doesn't actually matter which one you pick; the story doesn't change. Right. If you played through it again and picked the other character, the story wouldn't change. It would change you know, which one of them is alive for longer. Yeah, but like it, it wouldn't make any, it wouldn't make any substantive difference on the events or how they play out. Right. Like the choice is ultimately meaningless because no, uh, it ha- because it doesn't actually have any impact on the events of the story. No. Outside of superficially. Butterfly effect here. Right. So I think that this is, but this is what games are really good at. They're really good at making you feel like you are responsible for a thing happening. And whether you are okay with that or not is up to you as a player. I think that, like, interactivity is the, is the hallmark of what makes something a game. And when you move into, like, a visual novel, like we've talked about earlier, at what point does it stop being a game and just starts being a thing that you're being told or railroaded or whatever? And it's a... It's a problem that like there is no solution for yet because we don't have an AI that can just run infinite possibility space game for you. Anyway, Evo ran Joe. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> um, this is a thing that I'm thinking a lot about these days. Um, so I we I, I did some die some die rolls, and uh, Evo is the our first winner. Uh, he wins a copy of Sanctuary RPG, so he can play through that game and sort of make his own judgments about how the roguelike sort of structure impacts the game's narrative. And uh, Alistair is the second winner who gets a copy of Overture, which is another one of Daniel's games. So congratulations to both of you. We will get in contact with you uh, through the emails that you sent in with your questions and figure out a way to get those uh, Steam keys to you. So thank you, uh, thank you for writing in, everybody who wrote in, even if you didn't win. So I guess we should move on to the, the questions that we came up with. I feel like you kind of answered this first one about what works and what brings forward. So I, uh, let's, let's start with this question about Overture, um, which we haven't talked about yet. So Overture is like a proc-gen Smash TV. Did you, like, was that what you were thinking when you made this? Because I really like Smash TV, and I think that We've seen a relatively low number of games in the style of Robotron in the recent past. We, I guess we've got like The Binding of Isaac, but that's so different in so many ways. And like Tormentor X Punisher or Geometry Wars or whatever, but they're all... This, this feels much more Smash TV to me than a lot of those other games. So was that what you were looking for? And then you sort of built the RPG foundation on top of it? What was, what was your thinking when you were designing this? Yeah, so um, so so like this is actually my my first foray into uh, programming like a two D game, and um, I kind of got inspired by you know you know obviously I I grew up playing uh, games like uh, uh, Smash TV, but um, I really was inspired by I guess the uh, combat system in the Diablo games. So like Diablo one, two, three, I really liked you know just just like mowing down monsters, um, just over and over again <laughs> and you know just like leveling up uh gearing up and repeating so yeah it was it was just uh i guess my my uh chase of uh that that visceral feeling where i'm just like mowing down mobs uh, uh viciously 
it was really satisfying the first time I, I killed a, a curse monster. I was just like, yeah, take that. You're not so big. Um, and then it, it dropped nothing that I could use, and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I should have thought this through a little better. But um, do you have like a, did you have a specific class that you favored when you play, when you play this game? Um, I was, uh, let's see, I really liked the, uh, druid, cause, uh, cause, like, when I was designing it, I was like, hmm, like, like, what would a druid be doing? <laughs> so I was like, hmm, well, a druid would, would have, like, a pet, so, you know, I had the little bird flying flying around, and then I was like, hmm, it'd, it'd be cool if he could turn into, like, a wolf, and, like, you know, to, like, add, add, like, an extra layer of, uh, depth to it, so I was like, okay, so, you know, he can change to a wolf, and then... And then I wanted to like kind of balance it out, so I was like, hmm, maybe the wolf should be faster and have a strong melee attack, and then the human form can can be ranged and uh, and have like a weaker ranged attack. Sounds like the druid is super broken. Yeah. <laughs> maybe some advice for new players: pick the druid. Because I played I played uh, all of my runs as the wizard uh, and the necromancer, and I was like, man, I made a paper. Like I like being able yeah. to hit dudes a million a million miles away, but. Boy, I like cannot touch anything. <laughs> so mm, maybe I picked the wrong class. Maybe I should have chosen more wisely and been a druid. But my uh, my views of druids are tainted by World of Warcraft. I think that they're all like trees, and, uh, <laughs> giant boot flap flapping flappy birds and stuff. Right. So I don't know. I think about oh, I guess like what's the difference between a hunter and a druid in, in a in a D and D game, right? They both have animal companions. Uh, Gordon, you wanna you wanna ask your next? Uh... Yeah. Uh, how does uh, how does Black Shell Media balance publishing and making games? Um, so we actually don't make games anymore. Well, well, not like officially anyway. Um, oh. <laughs> I don't know. I just heard about a, I heard a rumor about a secret project. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So so you know, there's a there's a there's a few secret projects. Uh, um, the pipeline, but we don't want to announce them yet because there's no like, like, release date, and we don't want to like you know disappoint people if the game ends up being vaporware. Um, <laughs> you heard it here, coming to Nintendo Switch <laughs> next year. <laughs> Sanctuary RPG, black and white. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so uh, we're we're basically just you know. We're we're like a publishing company, and then we're also like an educational company. So, uh, so like back when I was you know do, doing game development full time, um, you know it was it was kind of frustrating uh, because I didn't know anything about marketing, and so so I guess uh, like these days it's super rewarding for me to I guess teach other people how to market their own games. So it's like half publishing, half teaching people how to market their games better. Yeah, cool. I I can relate to that. I went from not knowing anything about uh, marketing to like, I've got a business track GDC talk this year that I'm trying to finish about how to market your game. Uh, so I can, I can definitely relate. Uh, so t- thinking about Sanctuary RPG, you've been in a position that a lot of developers would find incredibly envious, which is being given the ability to sort of remake one of your games. I think the, the only other one of ones of these that I can think of that spring immediately to mind are like Spelunky or the Binding of Isaac, which both got direct remakes by their original creators. 
So when you were transitioning between Sanctuary RPG and uh, the, the black version, because the original was just like a browser freeware thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the original yeah. was uh, free. What were, yeah. What were, so what were the, the major things that you wanted to improve upon and sort of what, what were some of those hard decisions in transferring the game from the freeware version into the, I guess, complete version that you can now buy on Steam? Because clearly there's a ton of new content, but when you come into the project, do you have, were you like, I'm just going to put in all these things that I didn't have time for? Or was it sort of more considered, this didn't work, we're going to have to replace this, we have to cut this, that sort of thing? Yeah, so uh, so the free version had a lot of placeholder art. Um, the the uh, the first fifteen minutes w weren't like wasn't really that polished. The um, game wasn't too balanced. Uh, it just didn't feel like something that I personally would have paid money for. So I didn't you know charge for it. Um, and then I was just like, okay, well well well, how do I take this to, to the next level and make something that you know that I can actually sell it and, and and be proud of. And so I was like, okay, well. Well, well, the first like 15 minutes needs to you know be polished enough to be be like really presentable. Uh, the game needs like an art overhaul, so I actually um, um, had like a friend help me out with um, art, and um, and uh, I think he like created over like I think it's like 100 or um, like 200 ASCII art pieces in the game, which is pretty nuts, because <laughs> um, it's like all all hand uh, hand drawn. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and then um, I think I I upped the code base. I think from uh, uh, I think the uh, classic version was like around sixty thousand lines of code. I think the uh, black edition is like over a hundred thousand lines of code. So it's it's almost like like a new game, um, but it's just well, it's okay. So like it's 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 the same game, but it's just like polished. And there's a lot more content, and and I could actually feel confident that you know it's polished enough uh, for me to actually sell. Uh, what is the relationship like between publisher and studio in the indie games industry? Yeah, so so basically, I guess um, the publisher is supposed to basically help the the developer with basically everything that isn't you know you know straight up development. Um, so with you know Blackshell Media, you know we we help them with uh, press releases, we help them with social media, we we, we help them uh, with porting, we help them reach press, we help them reach uh, influencers, and then the uh, developers, you know, just uh, their job is just to like make the game as good as possible, and I guess as a publisher, it's like like how do we help them? Do everything else, and like uh, you know, part of that is is even like QA, so like testing, focus testing, quality assurance, um, and uh, yeah, just like uh, just like making sure that that the game is is positioned as good as possible. Uh, well, because like I mean, there's there's no guarantee of you know success, um, but we can help them, I guess, be as 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 positioned as well as possible. Given, I guess, our our experience with um, like like seeing what it's like to like launch games, um, you know, trying to figure out what's what's the the right target demographic for each game, and uh, what what kind of polish is needed to, you know, create create a game that you know could uh, be, I guess, good. Because like a lot of developers, you know, they like 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 personally. Um, Whenever I'm working on something, like it's hard for me to like figure out whether or not it's good or not because I'm 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 super biased about it. So I feel like um, 
uh, you know, having um, having someone there or having like a like a group of testers there to you know just um, tell me how horrible my baby is so that I can you know reiterate <laughs> um, on it is like a really big deal. So, I guess we started to do this already, but let's let's dig a little a little more into the technical aspects of Sanctuary RPG. Um, as you know, somebody who has recently published a largely ASCII art game, uh, this this interests me. Uh, so, and I wanted to know what sort of what was your workflow like? Because what we did um, was we utilized a PlaySkey engine from. Uh, former guest J.P. Breton, who you can go back and listen to his interview if that is a thing that interests you listeners, uh, hear about Playski. And then we imported those ASCII art environments that we had created into Unity. I think that they were just imp like imported as whole objects, even though it was an entire environment. Um, I didn't do this, so if I'm wrong, uh, Jim can come and, and yell at me. But... Sanctuary RPG is so much earlier than Frog Fractions 2 that clearly this wasn't available to you guys when you were doing this. So you also weren't looking to like make whole game environments out of text in the same way that we did. So did you have a dedicated ASCII editing software in Engine, or were you like working outside of your framework and then importing it after the fact? Um, so so like to be uh, to be super super transparent, like I basically. Um, Coder, or I, okay, so I basically used Notepad uh, to to like uh, <laughs> yes. to like draw it, and then um, I would you know um, just like try to approximate these like shapes and stuff, and yeah, so it was it was just super ghetto, and I honestly had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> that that's the best though. Well, the, when this game came out, what twenty fourteen was it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. You definitely, like, the re the tools, even for making this sort of ASCII art game, even three years ago were so much worse than they are today. So that it's, like, the fact that you just, like, made it all in Notepad is very impressive. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was crazy. I mean, you know, like, it, like it's a lot of uh, tedium, I guess. That's how I, <laughs> that's how I did all of my ASCII art when I was writing guides on GameFAQs. You had to have that... <laughs> Really good ASCII art logo at the top oh, of your fact. I remember that. To take you seriously. <laughs> I remember the and, like transition period when those got like almost photorealistic. When you realized that like people were just feeding their pictures, their JPEGs through a. <laughs> there was a yeah. Somebody wrote software to convert image to ASCII, and suddenly they were all super good. Yeah, and I remember being disappointed. That was when I stopped caring. It didn't have that because uh, there was authorship just, to it. Right, but like hand spelling out the legacy of Goku 2 <laughs> in like very large ASCII bubble letters and you're like drawing a giant snake monster for your boss RPG to put at the top. Those were the days, man. Also, when you had like nothing to do because you were 12 <laughs> and you decided that like, oh, what am I going to do with my time? I guess I'll write a game facts guide because that's, that's a good use of my time. Those guides are still up there, man. I should, you could go on to the if you if you are a guy who wrote GameFAQs guides, you probably have like a bunch of five star reviews of your guide that you don't even know existed <laughs> because you haven't looked at your profile in fifteen years. But boy, people do still use those. Oh wow, really? Oh yeah. I mean, I still if I want to know something, like I will just go to GameFAQs because if you put into Google, how do I do this thing in this game? It's just gonna show you 
a 12 minute YouTube video hmm. with some guy talking. Yeah. And ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> I want to just read a text description of the button I have to press. I don't want to watch somebody do it. That's like findability of game information on the internet has gotten way worse as a result of YouTube because everything is a video now. That, guess not just that, also like monetize those. cooking, baking. Oh yeah, well, like recipes, like trying to figure out how to do anything yep. on the internet. It's all video now. Yep. And literally just give me the five sentence description. <laughs> yep. I, I can figure, I'm, I'm smart enough. I understand. Here's what we need to do. We need to come up with a... Yeah, let's uh, make a video about how to make a text guide uh, and put it on GameFAQs. We need to, uh, we need to make a script that will... I still haven't gotten any listener content telling us to make good YouTube videos, so, you know... Yeah, isn't anybody listening to this live? Those days are past. <laughs> um, yeah, what we need to do is write a script that will just scoop all of the uh, transcription notes off of a video and just load only that and not load anything else. And then you just have the five sentences uh, from the start. I, if I'm going to look at a video of somebody playing a game, I never want to hear that person talking over the game. Unless they're explaining to me what right. it means to do right. half of a press, and all it does is like all this does is give you the raw text. Right, but I don't want that stuff. I want to just because they're describing what they're doing in the video. The raw audio from a from a video is actually really unhelpful, unless he's describing what it means to do half an a press, and then I'm really interested. <laughs> Did you say half an uh, a press? Yeah. Do you not know what half of an a button press is? Uh, yeah. You know, I've I've been watching some. Uh, Super Mario 64 speedrun technical videos. Yeah, mm -hmm, yep. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm referring to. Wow. That's why I'm saying, do you know what a half an A button press is? I wouldn't want to read that, though. I need to see that. Right, exactly. That's my point. Okay. That's the only... Those situations are the only time when All I right. want to hear the person's voice. When they're explaining something that is just impossible to understand. Hmm. If you have, like, oh, you know, it's this thing that I did in Mario 64. <laughs> I broke the game and the environments. And also there are parallel universes where the entire environment is invisible. Like, you just... Man, if you haven't watched that half an A button press uh, video, li listeners, go watch it. You'll learn something about Mario 64. Yep. Your mind may be blown a little bit. And also Kennel World for Link's Awakening. That is a different... That's a different thing to watch. <laughs> All right. There are, uh, let's, let's get back yeah, to yeah, questions. Yeah. Daniel. Uh, <laughs> What does Blackshell look for in a client, and when would you say is a studio ready to look for a publisher? Um, so I guess we're just looking for a game that's uh, in our wheelhouse. So you know, something that has to do with roguelikes, something polished, and something genuinely fun. Because because uh, like there's a lot of you know, uh, or we actually get like a lot of people you know trying to publish with us, and they have this you know prototype where it's like. It was it was kind of obvious that they made it you know in like a couple of days, and they're like, hey, will you publish my my game? And I'm like, uh, well, I'm I'm sorry, but I can't. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so uh, I guess as far as I guess uh, uh, the the uh, the the ideal conditions for publishing, I mean, um, like like just as long as like there's there's a semblance of like real polish there, the uh, the core game loops you know fully complete. And um, yeah, so so it's mostly just um, we we want to work with a developer who you know has like a 
uh, has like like a clear goal in mind of you know when when they're gonna finish it, and then they're they're you know kind of close to the finish line, and um, but at the same time like they're they're looking for like external marketing support and uh, potentially testing. Um, so yeah, yeah, that that'd be the ideal uh, time. Uh, if you said this already, I'm sorry, I, I, I missed it. Do you do you also provide funding for those publisher or the developer or not? Um, we we don't. I mean, okay. We we uh, cover uh, like like trailer production. We cover uh, social media marketing. We we cover certain things, but um, we we don't give cash advances or um, provide funding. Okay. Yeah. because. When when we were working with our publisher, that was like a big deal. Was that like, oh, we're just going to give you a hundred thousand dollars up front, which was uh, really good, but also uh, not a thing that I hear from most indie developers working with their publisher. So uh, that's why I was I was curious whether you you also handle that aspect as well. Um, yeah. So how does your history in psychology inform your game design? Uh, that's a good question. So I mean, I guess as a as a guy with a psych degree, I feel like I'm I'm you know like naturally inclined to like overthink things and you know try to like try to figure out ways to get players to like take certain actions. Um, so I think that you know like it like like it definitely influences my my uh, design philosophies quite a bit. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, just just the whole. Uh, well, I can't like pinpoint exactly how it does help, but I mean, like, subconsciously, you know, I'm always translating, you know, the concepts that I learned from my undergrad to uh, my games. Cool. Uh, yeah. How how can people find your book? It's more than one book, right? You have like, you have like four books. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one of them is a uh, uh, a free EPUB. I'm presuming that you're not talking about the person with the same name uh, who died in 1983 <laughs> for his classic hiking book, Man, 50, this, hikes, this got... 50 Hikes in the White Mountains and 50 More Hikes in New Hampshire. This episode got really spooky. <laughs> that is really spooky. <laughs> I would say only one of those two, these two people have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> I don't know. So, did you? Are you the author of the novel The Crystal Years? So, so are you guys saying that I might be dead? It's on the uh, table. That would be, that would make this episode the spookiest episode that we've ever had. <laughs> Man, I really need to get this episode like edited out before Halloween, right? Because otherwise, it won't be good anymore. Like the spooky will have dried up. <laughs> You've got an hour I'm, and a I'm half. I'm presuming that's like spooky is wet, right? That's a thing. Is it really wet? Like, like what? Well, I like to think like what's what's spookier, a, a, a wet thing or a dry thing? It depends uh, on what 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 context. Yeah. <laughs> if it's blood, that's really spooky. <laughs> if it's blood, it, it's spooky. If it's wet or dry, actually. Okay, so you so so you're so okay, so you're like in fourth grade. <laughs> And you're at the school cafeteria haunted house, and they say, "Close your eyes and stick your hand to this paper bag. It'll be something spooky. It'll be human eyeballs." And you reach your hand in, and you have a choice between like some wet grapes or like some sand. 
which is spookier. Well, it could be bones. No, but they already told you it was eyeballs. Yeah. Well, it could <laughs> you be like ash. bag expecting eyeballs and it's bones. <laughs> is it human bones? <laughs> well, that you're not going anyway, to where, where can people find your book, uh, The Crystal Years? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, let's see. Google Crystal Years and uh, search for Daniel yeah. Dunn. Apparently, uh, the papers of Daniel Doan are the Dartmouth College Library, so, you know. <laughs> Just saying. Could go, could learn everything there is to know about you as a ghost. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, all, they're all on Amazon, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, um, in, in all seriousness, um, I've written about, uh, I think it's four books. I don't remember exa- exactly. I think it's like three or four. Uh, you can go to Amazon, search Daniel Doan, and then uh, you can click my author profile. It has uh, the books on there. And uh, one's, uh, one's about marketing. Uh, one's about, I guess, the development cycle in general. One's more on the mindset. And then one is kind of like a post-mortem on Sanctuary. Cool. My favorite one was uh, Indian Stream Republic, Settling a New England Frontier, 1785. <laughs> <laughs> So we always have one, one question that we ask all of our guests before we, we wrap up our show. So we're going to ask you the same question. And that question is, what is your favorite type of cheese? Oh, that one's hard. So it's a tie, or no, yeah. It's a three-way tie between uh, Swiss, Brie, and Pepper Jack. If you had to pick one, could you? No, no, like, like, like that's like impossible. <laughs> Can't be done. How about this is this is always the three. thing that our guests have like the strongest opinions on. <laughs> so. Would you uh, well, would would you put all three of those on the same pizza? Um, I would. I know three on a pizza would be <laughs> dubious. Are you kidding? One of the, what are you some sort some sort of degenerate? One of the what you, what's, one what's of wrong the best foods you? is some dough with some brie on it, or in it really. Okay, uh, are we talking about a pizza? Because I, I don't think we're talking about a pizza. I, I assume it would translate. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I think, I, I think I've just done this. I think I just, like, you know, get a frozen pizza uh, and just well, drop we're talking some, about, like, some baby bells onto it. Hmm. But baby bell is not brie. No, I guess not. Like not a, that's that's a completely different type of cheese. I hate to tell you. Uh, and that that was my first mistake. Uh huh. Okay. Well, are we talking about like Brie Larson? Okay. Quick, let's uh, let's come up with at least one more lateral jump. Uh uh uh. Gary Larson. Br- Br- Brienne like. of Tarth. Okay. Good. All right, we're we're, we're, we're going to stop. Let's let's end this. Daniel, let's how can uh, pod, let's... how can people get a hold of you if they're uh, interested in uh, doing so? Yeah, so um, uh, if you uh, want to check me out, you can go to www.danieldone.net. That's my website. Um, you can send me an email, Daniel at blackshellmedia.com, or you can uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, Don Daniel. And if people wanted to uh, get in contact with us, well, first how would uh, they do first. That? Talk to Daniel and then ask him, and then he'll, you know, forward, forward you along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So if people wanted to get in contact with us, <laughs> you can how go would to, they uh, do that? Redpagespodcast.com. You could uh, send an email to contact at redpagespodcast.com. Uh, you can tweet at us yep. at redpagespodcast. Yeah. You could uh, you could come to our houses. Okay. That'd be a little weird, but. Uh, that uh, please don't. Although you'll know it's mine because it'll be pink with the <laughs> trim, right? It would be a very effective method. Yeah. Uh, I also want to say thank you to our Patreon backers who back us loyally every month on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash redpagespodcast. Thank you, Patreon backers. We have not forgotten you. The cool thing that we said is coming is still coming. Isn't that right, Gord? It's coming, like, immediately, right? Uh, y- yes. It's coming. We put a lot of time and effort into it. It's true. <laughs> well, we've put a lot of time into it. And if you don't want to pay us for this podcast, that's fine. This podcast will remain free forever. But we thank those of you who put put out a little more each each uh, each month to help us out. So thank you, Patreon backers. Um, I guess that's it. That's it. Do you have anything else to say? Does anyone have any final words? I mean, you usually do. No, I mean like before those final words. <laughs> No? Okay. All right. Good night, everybody. Keep on Trucklestein.